right. Well, if you would take out your Bibles, we are in Romans chapter 9 this morning. Romans chapter 9. We spent several weeks in Romans chapter 8, just the amazing chapter uh, right there in this, this wonderful letter that Paul writes to the church in Rome. And it starts out again, chapter 8 starts out with that glorious promise to us as Christians that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None, ever for us. We stand justified, we stand declared righteous, and we move through that chapter 8, as we talked about again, filled with the Holy Spirit as believers, and the Holy Spirit testifying within our spirit that we are children of God, and because we are children of God, we, we have an inheritance that is waiting for us. Yet, in the time between now and then, we still carry around this flesh and the, and the, the difficulties and the trials and the limitations thereof, and we, we struggle through this, and, and the, the, Paul told us in that, that because the Holy Spirit is in us and we're struggling in this, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us continually according to the perfect will of the Father for us as believers. And even when we don't know how to pray, because most of the time, quite honestly, based on what we're going through, we don't know how to pray because we don't understand the perfect will of God for our lives, but the Holy Spirit does and intercedes for us. And then we saw that beautiful verse, Romans eight twenty eight, studying through that, that we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and called according to his purposes. It doesn't matter what we're seeing around us. It doesn't matter what we're experiencing in the moment. We can know because we're children of God that he's using all of that together for good. And we know that because as it goes on to tell us and Paul outlined for us that God, creator God, before the foundation of the world chose to place his love on us. And his purpose and his plans have been moving through that to bring each and every one of us to that ultimate place we're predestined for, to be conformed to the image of our Lord and Savior, King Jesus. That, that, is, that is where we are all headed and, and predestined to be there. He's called us. He's justified us. And we will be glorified. So much so, we know the fact that God records that for us as we read. In the past tense, even though we haven't experienced it yet, even though we are not there yet, in God's economy, we're already there. And then finishing chapter 8 with that glorious truth. Because if, if, this is, if this is something we could hold on to, but it could be taken away from us, we'd all be in a, it wouldn't be anywhere near as glorious as the truth that Romans 8 ends with, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It starts with no condemnation. It ends with no separation, this, this amazing chapter 8. And you would think that as, as Paul now transitions into chapter 9, although there weren't any chapter breaks, he would have following right after those, those verses of no separation, you would think he would say, I am filled with great joy and unceasing jubilation at this truth. But as we begin chapter 9, we see Paul's, Paul's tone changes. And we see in verse 1, it says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Now, again, those verses don't seem to go with the previous verses. But we see as we continue to read what it is that grieves Paul's heart. Verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul understood that this great, this great truth that is for us as born-again believers has not, been, has not been received by everyone. 
that it is available to all, but there are many who have rejected it. And, and of those are many of his countrymen, the Jewish people. And verse 3 should cause us all to, to take pause, take notice. He said, I wish that I were accursed, separated from Christ. He's saying, if it were possible that I would forfeit my salvation so that they all would be saved, I would do it. And he's not just speaking flippantly. Again, verse 1 and 2 set that up. I says, I tell you the truth. This is my heart. And he goes on after verse 3 in verses 4 and 5 to describe, and I think as we look at it as a whole, we can understand the grief that is in his heart. When he talks about the, his Jewish brethren, he is a Jew. He is, as he proclaimed, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's 100% Israelite. And he talks about them here as he moves through these verses. And we can just look at a, at a couple of the things that he points out. First of all, he says adoption is sons. God specifically chose the Jewish people to be his people. Going all the way back to Abraham and, and the descendants that follow, the promise made to Abraham. Moses will record in Deuteronomy chapter 7, and he's saying that God chose you to be a people for his own possession out of all peoples. And he goes on to say it wasn't because you were the greatest of all people. It wasn't because you were the most of all people. As a matter of fact, when he made the choice, you were the smallest. When he chose Abraham, he goes on to say the glory, the covenants, God choosing to, to be with you as a people in such a special way, his presence with you continually, taking them out of, out of Egypt, again, leading them by the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day, continually leading them, protecting them, guarding them, and giving them the covenant promises through Abraham and David. The law, the law given to them, the, the, the temple services, the, the worship that was given to them and outlined for them, the perfect law given to them, not as a bunch of rules and boxes to stay within, but the blessing of the law that was given to them. And, and they and we so often misunderstand the law of God. Again, it was not given, again, to, to keep us in a bunch of rules and regulations. The law of God is given to bless us. Paul, David, I'm sorry, writes in, Rome, in Psalm 19 this. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, yes, much more than fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. There is great blessing that comes from following God's commands. He gave them the law. He gave them the, the service of worship to him. The fathers, the covenant blessings that were made. But I believe this is all building up to what Paul makes the point of here at the end of verse 5. And from whom, out of which the Jewish people would come the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. 
Paul says that through the Jewish people would come the promised Messiah. That is what is outlined for us in the prophets as it is foretold. A Messiah would come through the Jewish people and save them, save the world, because he would take upon himself the sin of the world. Foretold in the prophets. And notice this, and this is very, very important as Paul lays this out, this doctrinal truth that is right here for us in verse five. Notice, for whom is the Christ according to the flesh, the Messiah, Jesus, coming in the flesh, fully man, but who is overall God, God, fully God. The doctrine that Jesus, fully man, fully God. A doctrine that is, that is non-negotiable. In order to be our savior, in order to take our penalty upon himself, he had to be fully man and fully God. And here Paul lays that out very clearly, blessed forever. Amen. But his heartbreak, his grief, his sorrow comes from the fact that this Messiah so clearly pointed out in the prophecies and Jesus fulfilling all of those prophecies completely, totally, 100%, so many missed it. So many reject it. And that is what Paul's great grief comes from, his, his sorrow that so many of those that he loves and cares for have rejected him. But the amazing part about, too, what he says in that I would, I would forfeit my own salvation for them is the understanding of who it is he's talking about. Not just his brethren, not just his bros, but those that are seeking his life. Those that are chasing him around, trying to end his ministry, trying to kill him. These Jews he specifically speaks of in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 when he says, from the Jews I received 39 lashes, scourging five times I received it from them. Stoned by them, beaten by them. Those are the ones, he says, I would, I would give up my own salvation if it meant them being saved. Wow. Now Paul as we, as we move out of these verses, there's, there's a dilemma that is outlined for us in these verses because he talks of the covenant promises that were made to them. But then in the fact that he is sorrowful that they have rejected their Messiah, is, is there a conflict with the gospel of God and the word of promise to Israel in the Old Testament? Because it's the same God that makes both, the promises that are coming through the Messiah and the promises made to Israel. Is there a conflict? And Romans 9, 10, and 11, taken as a whole, address that. And I wanna give you all homework to do. <laughs> Read Romans 9, 10, and 11. Don't just stop where we stop today and come back next week. Come back next week, but <laughs> read Romans 9, 10, and 11 this week because it needs to be taken as a whole. Because we come to this, this dilemma that we're gonna end with here as, as we're working through this today. But we see as Paul unfolds it for us in these three chapters that the New Testament gospel does not negate the Old Testament promises. As a matter of fact, the New Testament gospel affirms the Old Testament promises to Israel and to us. But he continues after verse five, notice this, and coming very quickly, he says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. 
And that is so vitally important because if God's word of promise in the Old Testament covenants to Israel failed, we have no reason to believe that God's word in the New Testament covenant to us will not also fail. This is an extremely important truth in verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. And he will go on now and giving a couple of examples to describe what he means. He continues in verse 6. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Just, become, just because they have Jewish descent, because they are physically Israel, does not mean that they are spiritually Israel. Israel can be translated governed by God. And that's just like saying, just because you say you're governed by God does not mean you are truly governed by God. Just like there are many Christians who make the statement, I'm a Christian, I am a Christ follower, but spiritually they are not Christ followers. And that's what he continues to outline here, verse 7. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise as regarded, are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. Paul goes back to the beginning of the Jewish people, all the way back to Abraham. And he speaks of the covenant promise made to Abraham that your descendants will be like the sand on the seashore, like the stars in the sky. You will have so many descendants. And from your descendants will come one that will, that will bless the world. Speaking, prophesying again of the coming Messiah through the, through the line of Abraham. Problem, Abraham's wife Sarah was barren. She had never born a child. And they are now both, getting, they are both advancing greatly in age. The promise made. The promise received. The Bible tells us Abraham believed. The problem was, just like you and I have a tendency to do, when we don't think that God's timetable is keeping up with ours, we think that the best thing to do is to help God out. And that's what happened. Sarah said, you know, this, this promise was made, and I'm not saying it's not going to come true, but it sure doesn't seem to be happening the way we thought it was. So here's the idea. Take my handmaid, Hagar, have a child through her, and we'll claim that as the child of promise. So Abraham said, okay, sounds all right to me. Problem, they didn't check with God about it. They have a child through Hagar, Ishmael. And Abraham initially thinks that this must be the child God was speaking of, but God spoke very clearly to him and said no. The child of promise, and this is the verse that he's speaking of here when he's quoting that this time I will return, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son, verse 9, speaking of the promise then that was made, no, Ishmael is not the child of promise. Sarah, your wife, next year will have a child, and that is the one. Again, the amazing thing, now Abraham's 100 years old, Sarah's 90, and has never been able to bear a child. It is an act of God that she conceives and has a son. God's word fulfilled because he said it. God's word fulfilled because he is all-powerful, sovereign God moving through, the, through this miracle to bring his word to fruition. 
a direct act of God brings about the promise of the child in Isaac. But he gives another example as we continue in verse 10. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not come, has not done anything good or bad, note this, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. We move now from Abraham's son Isaac to Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau. We could easily say, just looking at that first example, okay, that makes perfect sense. We have the, the child of promise. They got ahead of themselves and, and in their flesh produced another child that God said, no, that's not it. It's the child of promise that I promised and fulfilled that. Two separate women, two separate boys coming out, two separate nations that come out. From, okay, I understand that. So God gives us the example of same, same father, same mother, same conception. They're twins. And not only that, Typically, always in that time frame, the oldest, the firstborn, would be the one that would receive the blessing. God says here, and we look at this, that he said to her, he said to Rebecca, the older will serve the younger. God's purpose, notice again, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand. God's purpose, according to his choice. His predetermined plan his choice according to his purpose his covenant promise to Israel and to the world will come about according to his plan his calling his choosing Peter says this in 1st Peter chapter 1 for he, speaking of Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter telling us here very clearly that the plan of salvation, foreknown before the foundation of the world, wasn't let, that Jesus was foreknown by then. It was the plan that he would come and suffer and die. A plan before the foundation of the world. Guys, Jesus going to the cross for you and me wasn't plan B in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve blew it. It wasn't like the, the, the triune God up in heaven going, oh no, now what do we do? No, it was predetermined. It was God's plan from before the foundation of the world. And I am totally blessed by that. That brings me great comfort. Because if God had this plan and he left it up to you and I to bring it about, no offense, but I'm not real confident in that. As a matter of fact, I have no confidence. But because the sovereign king of the universe, the creator of all things, God's purpose, according to his choice, 
would stand. Not based on works. Again, this is not based on human effort. And this isn't the first time that, that Paul has spoken of what we have not being based on works. As a matter of fact, speaking of salvation, if you'll go back to chapter 4, we were there a while ago. Chapter 4, again, speaking of Abraham. And though the covenant promise is made to him, it tells us in verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Chapter 4, verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. It's not grace if, if, if it's owed, if it's a debt or a reward. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Again, not based on works, but faith, believing in God, believing in what God promised. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, again, speaking of our salvation, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. It is not about works, not based on works. But when we go back to our text here, it does not say so that the purpose, uh, purpose, God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand not based on works, but based on faith. It doesn't say that. Look at what it says. But because of him who calls. Because of him who calls. Sovereign almighty God calls his word as it goes out. The God of creation's word brings about what he chooses. If you've been a part of Calvary Chapel surprised for any length of time, you know that one of my favorite verses to go to when, when we start getting into some of these things that we just can't fully wrap our mind around is the reminder that the mind who is behind all of it is a lot bigger than ours. <laughs> Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 8, it says, God speaking, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Almighty all-powerful God, when he speaks a word, it will happen, period. And as we, as we approach this next part, guys, that is so important that we understand, again, his way is higher than our ways, beyond our capability of fully grabbing a hold of. And, and again, I, I, remind, I like that 
I'm so glad God is not limited to my understanding. I'm so glad that God's not limited to my thoughts. Because we come to a verse, uh, last week, 38 and 39 of Romans 8, 37, including uh, pastors everywhere love to preach on those verses. Those are, those are highlighted, underlined, dog-eared in every, every pastor's Bible. Chapter 9, verse 13, not so much. <laughs> Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What do we do with that? I can tell you, this week, reading a whole lot of commentaries, looking at what others try to do, unpacking that, came up with some things, but I struggled with even some of their explanations. Some, one I read that said that he's not speaking of individuals, he's speaking of nations, the nation of Israel and the nation of Edom that would, that would come from Jacob and Esau, but that's not what Paul says. Paul is speaking of the individual people, Jacob and Esau. And the choice that he made, he chose Jacob before they did anything, right or wrong. He chose Jacob. Some speak that it was the action and not an emotion that is being spoken of here. Okay, I can, I can, I can go along with that. I can, I can understand that because we understand God is a God of love. It says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So the action that, that, that would follow in the choosing maybe is what is being referred to there. I heard one other saying, you know, again, well, when it's speaking of the hatred there, it, that points to Jesus using the reference of hatred when he says, unless you hate your mother and father, you can have no part of me. And understanding Jesus isn't telling us to hate our parents. The, the Bible tells us that we're to love and honor our parents. What he's saying, and Jesus clearly meaning in that, is that in comparison to your love for me, nothing can get in the way of that, including Love for family and that type of thing. That's what Jesus is talking about there. And so they try to bring that over here and say, well, okay, maybe. But if we just keep reading, Paul answers it for us. Maybe not in the way you want to hear. But he says in verse 14, what shall we say then? Because when we look at that, before they're, before they're born... Before they've done anything good or bad, he chose Jacob and he rejected Esau. And we, our, our, our minds would say, well, that's not fair. So what do we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. God's not unjust, is he? Of course not. He's perfect. He's holy. He's righteous. He can't do anything unjust. He can't do anything unrighteous. It's It's impossible. So he, he must, after that statement, right, go on to fit, make it very clear, right? No. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. I guess what I'd like to focus in on here in our few minutes left is what is the text telling us? What does it say here? Paul does not go into some great 
further explanation? Is God unjust? Of course not. He can't be. He's going to have compassion on whom he's going to have compassion and mercy who he's going to have mercy. And we're going to move on from there. I think the problem comes when, when we all, as Christians, when, when we're trying to wrestle with this or especially when we're trying to explain it to somebody else, we feel like we have to be God's PR director. That we somehow need to explain the unexplainable. If Paul can't explain it and doesn't try, why should I? Guys, our job isn't to go out and defend God's tweets. <laughs> Regardless of what people do with them or, or feel about them. I want to read to you a quote that really did speak to me in a commentary this week that really helped me kind of settle things as I was wrestling through it. First of all, there's a word in here that I had to look up, so I'll save you all the embarrassment. You can all tell me later. I knew what that meant, but even if you didn't. Theodicy. It, it's, it's the... It's the justification of God when we're facing these types of situations. That's what the word means. It's what, you know, what we use to, to defend God, if you would. So he says, speaking of this verse, criticisms are the product of a false assumption. That Paul's justification of the ways of God in his treatment of human beings must meet the standards set by our own assumptions and standard of logic. That somehow we have to put God in a box that we can all understand. Paul's approach is quite different. He considers his theodicy to be successful if it justifies God's acts against the standards revealed in Scripture and against his character as creator. That's it. In other words, the standard by which God must be judged is nothing less and nothing more than God himself, whose thoughts and ways are much higher than ours. There is, guys, there is no resolution to the paradox that is clearly laid out by Paul and by Scripture that number one, God, by his own sovereign choice, elects human beings to salvation. And number two, man, by responsible choice of their own will, must believe in order to be saved. Those two things, though we can't reconcile them both to be together, are required. We're going to see as we continue on, and as I've told you, and you will diligently do your homework, when you read into chapter 10, that's where Paul says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. People struggle with this whole thing all the time. It's not fair. Get saved. I, people use the craziest reasons to fight the conviction of the Holy Spirit in their heart. The Holy Spirit reaching out, no doubt, even to some of you today here listening, here in the, in the sanctuary or online that are wrestling with this, that I just can't, I just can't follow a God that, that requires that or whatever. What about the people in Africa that are never going to hear the gospel message? Get saved. And then go to Africa. <laughs> if that's what God calls you to do. I, but don't use something like that as a reason to reject 
the free gift that is being offered to you. Don't, don't use what the, the enemy would try to use to, to distract, to build a barrier. Stop you from receiving the free gift of salvation. Again, don't try to figure out the whole doctrine of election. I'd let, I think it was D.L. Moody who said it. I love it. It says, God save the elect and elect some more. I don't, I don't understand it. But I know it works. And I know where we're all accountable and responsible for our own decisions. But I want to go back to, again, verse 13. Because so often, and I know we're, most of you probably parked, because we all do initially, it's the last part. But Esau, I hated. I want to focus on the first part because that's the real mind blower. Jacob, I loved. That's the, that's the part that should blow our minds. He goes on to describe it again that I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Understand this. Jacob did not get what he deserved. Jacob got mercy. He didn't earn God's favor. God gave it to him. And that blows me away because I too have been given mercy. God didn't give me what I deserve. He gave Jesus what I deserve. Jesus took upon himself what I deserve. To illustrate this as best I can, again, this, this, this is the hard part. Try to explain the unexplainable. But, but I, get, I got a little disclaimer before the illustration. It has holes in it, okay? <laughs> so save your emails. <laughs> but imagine that you were on a ship out in the middle of the ocean, and there are no life vests, there are no lifeboats, and the ship is on fire, and it's going down. And all of a sudden... A boat pulls up next to it, and a father and son are in it. And the father tells the son, get out, go and hold off the flames as long as you can. You're going to go down with the boat, but we got to get some of these people off. And the boat's not big enough to have everybody, but you are one of the ones that the father chooses to get in the boat to take away, and you're taken away to safety. Now the kicker is, you started the fire. Don't deserve to get on that boat. That's mercy. A merciful, compassionate God chose to have mercy on me. I have no right to mercy. I have no right to mercy. But he chose to give it to me. That blows my mind. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, as to this salvation, the salvation that God would take upon himself, my debt, my punishment, so that I could be saved, to extend this mercy to me, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The prophets who, for, who God gave the, the, the knowledge of, 
who saw that, that God was going to save the world through the Messiah that was coming, and he was going to take on their sin. And they saw it, but they didn't fully understand it. They didn't know who it was. They didn't understand the timing, but they knew because God promised it, it's coming. It said it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which, you have now, which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Here, things into which angels long to look. The angels up in heaven, watching over everything that is going on, longing to look into this. Guys, this, this blows their minds. They look at me, the ones that are, the ones that are assigned to me, and I have a feeling regularly, they go, you got to be kidding me. God, are you serious? Him? Understand, guys, the angels know nothing about mercy other than what they see God extending to us because they were shown none. The ones who rebelled against God, cast out of heaven, lake of fire forever for them. That is what awaits them. No mercy. But mercy has been extended to you and I. I have a, one, of my, one of the songs I really enjoy, and it had been a while since I had listened to it until just recently when some friends gave me a, a picture that had some of the lyrics on it. I went back and I listened to it this week, and it just, again, just kind of sums it up for me. It says, I delight myself in you, in the glory of your presence. God, I run into your arms unashamed because of mercy. I'm overwhelmed by you. Overwhelmed. Blown away that you would extend mercy to me, that you would love me. And Paul too was blown away by that. Blown away and it affected who he was. And it, it should affect who we are and what we do and what our heart feels. Turn with me real quickly, if you would, to 1 Timothy. We'll finish here. 1 Timothy. It's a letter that Paul's writing towards the end of his life. A letter to one of his students, one of his sons of the faith. 1 Timothy, chapter 1. Beginning in verse 12, Paul writes this, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Verse 16, yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Mercy given to Paul. Mercy given to you and to me so that our Lord and Savior 
Jesus can be manifest through us. Remember, we talk about that in sanctification. That is what it is. The Son of God being manifest in us, the children of God. And I go back to verse 3. Hey, stay here in 1 Timothy. I'm just going to go back real quick and read verse 3 again in chapter 9. For I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What causes a man who is being persecuted and sought after and, and all of this stuff to have a heart like that for the people who are trying to kill him? Verse 16, mercy that was given to me. I didn't deserve it, but it was given to me so that the one who has given me that mercy might work in and through me. Jump ahead to chapter two. First of all, then, because of this, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. Verse 3, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. All men. It's God's desire that all come to a knowledge of him, a saving knowledge of him. Should not that be our desire? And shouldn't that desire be so passionate within us that it reflects the very heart of Jesus? And I believe back in verse 3, that is what's happening. That's the heart of Jesus coming out because he did take on our punishment. He did take on the separation from the Father as he hung on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took that upon himself so that we never will face it. That's the heart of Jesus in verse 3 that is now the heart of Paul because of mercy. Bottom line, don't let what the enemy would choose to be a barrier to us become a barrier because God desires it to create a burden within us. A burden for the lost. A burden for those who even come against us. That they would come to understand and embrace the mercy that has been given to us. Yes, God. Sovereign, almighty God chose before the foundation of the world to place his love on you. If you're a born-again believer here today, he chose before the foundation of the world to place his love on you. And nothing can separate you from that love. Nothing can stop his plans. Nothing can alter his purpose. Nothing can disrupt the process of you becoming conformed to the image of his son. Take great comfort in that. Would you stand? Let's pray and let's, let's praise the Savior, the lover of our souls, the one who has given us so much, the one who has extended mercy to us. Jesus, we again are in awe of you. Lord, we come to these places in your word and we're, we're challenged in our minds, but Lord, we surrender in our hearts again to the fact that you are almighty God that your ways and your thoughts are so much higher than ours. And it is in that purpose that is beyond our understanding, in that plan, that you chose to extend mercy to us, not giving us what we deserve, but giving us love, giving us grace, 
you're here today and you've never embraced that love and that grace, you're not, you've never, never made Jesus Lord of your life, I invite you right now to not harden your heart. Do not push away the, the prompting of the Holy Spirit on your heart right now, but surrender. Follow Jesus today. Give your life to him. It's a supernatural transaction that takes place, but you have to be willing You have to surrender your will to his. Just go before him in your heart and say, God, I'm a sinner, and I don't understand all of this, but I I understand that my life's not pleasing to you. I understand I'm outside of your will for me. I understand I need a Savior in Jesus. I I don't get it all, but I get that you died for me. I believe it. I receive it in faith that you took my place. So come into my life. Take my sin. Give me, give me this gift of eternal life. Fill me with your spirit that I might follow after you. Give me this joy. Thank you for your mercy. And Jesus, we worship you today, the giver of all, all good things. And Lord, as, as we worship you this morning, as we worship you this week with hearts of gratitude and in, uh, for your mercy and your grace, Lord, would you, would you draw us even closer to your heart so that, that your heart becomes our heart, Lord, that we would follow you, that your heartbeat would beat within us, that we would love what you love. We would love who you love. Lord, you'd give us a burden for the lost. Lord, that you'd give us boldness to share who you are with those that we'll be seeing this week around the Thanksgiving table, in the, in the grocery store, at wherever it may be, Lord. Have your way in and through us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.